Even though our faithfulness to him falls very, very short, his faithfulness is to us never fails. So we are in chapter 10 of this book. We're going to be handling 10 verses uh, of this chapter this morning. But before we get into that, I want to turn our attention to the book of Romans in the New Testament. Here the Apostle Paul, in the early chapters, begins to share with us the nature of sin and the extent of its effects on humankind. And in chapter 2, he turns his attention to the Jews, his chosen people, those who were a part of the old covenant. They were joined to God through that covenant. He begins to urge these Jews towards faith in Jesus Christ. Now this likely sounded strange to some of the Jews who read the book of Romans. For a good portion believed that because they were born Jewish, because they had been ceremonially circumcised after birth, that they were automatically recipients of the grace of God and were assured salvation. But the problem was, as Paul points out, even though these Jews were under the old covenant and were guilty of the same sins they preached against, they were therefore deserving of God's judgment and they were in need of grace. Even though they had been given the sign of the old covenant, God was revealing to them through this new covenant that apart from faith in the Lord God and the gift that He sent to extinguish our sins in Jesus Christ, there could be no redemption. So in chapter 3, Paul anticipates a question that would likely arise in the mind of these Jewish readers. What was the point of the old covenant? What advantage is there in being a Jew if their circumcision was not the thing that saved them? If they still need salvation, what's the advantage of the old covenant? Paul insists there in chapter 3 that the Jews have been given a great many advantages, namely that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Through Israel, God reveals himself to the world. Think about the many things we learn about Yahweh through his ministry to his covenant people Israel. God has interacted directly with them through his, his prophets. He has shown them who he is. He has shared divine revelation. They know so much more than the Gentile nations around them because God has given them the special revelation of His Word. By God's Scripture, we know who God is and what He expects of His people. God has also entrusted these covenant Israelites with the law of God. And the law of God helps us to see how we are to conduct ourselves before the living God. It also shows us what is important to Yahweh because the law reflects His nature and His character. So there are a great many advantages and benefits that the Jews have in being raised in Jewish families. And yet despite these generous advantages, many Jews did not believe in the Messiah. Though he came and professed the goodness of God, though he came and showed his divine appointment through the signs that he performed and through the way that he powerfully preached the word with such authority and conviction, they did not believe. They did not make the connection between the, the words given by the fathers and the unique ministry they witnessed in the life of our Savior. From this surprising development with the nation of Israel, we can draw two very important observations about the way that God saves. First, whether or not someone trusts in Jesus Christ is not based on the favorable circumstances that they encounter. If you grew up in a godly home where your mom and your dad not only preached the truth to you, but modeled the truth to you. We're an example of faithfulness to the Son of God. That is a great and wonderful blessing. and you should, you should thank the Lord for that wonderful grace that He gave to you. But that's not a guarantee that you will also follow in the steps of your parents and be people of faith. 
Circumstances are not the things that save us or fail to save us. Secondly, God is the only author of salvation. He saves whom He desires to save. On the one hand, that takes some pressure off of us. We don't have to fret and worry that if we don't say exactly the right thing to our children, if I don't preach exactly the right words to you, then you're not going to be saved because of my failures. Your children will be left out of the kingdom of God because you didn't raise them properly. We don't have to worry about that, friends, because salvation is in the hands of God. We must preach Jesus faithfully. We should continue to show others the light that has been shown to us so that the Spirit might work in the lives of those who hear the gospel preached. That is the way that God reaches people. But on the other hand, we think about the fact that God alone ordains salvation. That also means that the glory for salvation is His alone. The glory of salvation isn't C.S. Spur- uh, C. C. Spurgeon's uh, glory to, to brag about, because although Charles Spurgeon was a preacher of the gospel and did such a faithful job in bringing the truth to people, it was God who was making him do that faithfully. Jesus Christ was the one who was working through the power of the Spirit to redeem lost people and to bring them into the kingdom of God. So praise the Lord that salvation is truly His to do. Here too we see in Hosea chapter 10 that earthly advantages are not necessarily advantageous to one's faith. So if you've got your Bible open to the 10th chapter of Hosea, we're going to read today how the northern kingdom had been benefited from a great abundance of financial blessings. So many resources had been given to them by the hand of a gracious God. They were more secure than they had ever been after God had made them His covenant people. And yet the more secure He made them, the less they tended to trust Him. And so we are in chapter 10 and we're going to look at the first 10 verses of this chapter this morning. Reading from God's Word through the pen of Hosea the prophet. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. And his country improved. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false, now they must bear their guilt. And the Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Its people, people mourn for it, and so do the idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Aven, the sign of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. For the, from the days of Gabeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gabeah? When I please... I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Almighty God, there is no source of salvation beside you. And so we are thankful, Lord, that throughout time and history, whoever has turned their eyes to you has experienced salvation because in you alone is redemption. 
And so we thank you, Lord God, for this word that contains much condemnation for a nation that had turned away from you, but also contains the, the truth of redemption. We know, Lord God, that you are the true solution to these problems of rebellion and selfishness. And so I ask that as we read about uh, these individuals from time past, God, that we will learn, that we will appreciate the new covenant that we are a part of today, and that we will rejoice in the triumphal the triumph and victory of the one and only King, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us discernment today, open our eyes and ears, help us to see and hear what you would have us to understand. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. If you were with us last week, you might have identified a continuation, a theme here in chapter 10 in the first few verses of our passage. In the second half of chapter 9 that we looked at last week, Hosea described Israel as being like grapes in the wilderness. Do you remember that? God had found them like wild grapes. And the idea was being that they were wild, they were uncultivated, they were raw. But here in chapter 10, we see that some time has passed and those wild grapes have come a long way since Yahweh made them his own. They are no longer a, a wild cluster growing in the harsh environs of the wilderness. Thanks to God's attention, this covenant people have become more like a luxuriant vine that has been cultivated that has been nurtured, one that's been trimmed back and pruned carefully, one that has an abundance of water and nutrient-rich soil that allows it to have the potential to thrive. Ever since God has made Israel his people, that's how he has cared for them. He has provided everything they need and much more. Yahweh has given the nation tremendous advantages and demonstrated his favor to them time and time again. Consider some of the ways that he has shown his generosity to his people. He has given them a national identity. This people that were scattered, wandering people have been brought together under the umbrella of God's blessing to Abraham. And through the seed of Abraham, this nation has grown and expanded so that it becomes a powerful force in the world. He has given these people victory over surrounding nations, even over people who made their trade at war. God has made these Israelites, who were just a simple shepherding people, into a force that could defeat even great armies. And time and time again, when defeat seemed sure, God turned the tide and gave them victory. He has granted them with abundant resources. He has blessed them so they never lacked what they needed. Even in a time when they were devastated in the wilderness, they didn't have crops of their own. They didn't have a place for their sheep pens. God provided manna for them and water from the rocks so that they would not fade out. The resources they needed were always at their fingertips. But most importantly, God has provided a covenant connection to himself for these people. He has allowed them to know him and to understand the truth of his reign over all creation. So Israel had been given countless reasons to rejoice in their God. But instead of grateful obedience returned to their Redeemer, Israel responds by using the very blessings that they've received from God to break God's law and to pursue other false gods. Verse 10 tells us that they have built more altars they have erected more pillars with these resources, with these riches that God has given to them. Now on the surface, that might seem to be a noble investment. You might think, what's wrong with that? Weren't altars and pillars places of ancient worship? Isn't this just the Israelites' way of expressing their affection towards God and giving Him holy worship? Perhaps it might be if the terms of the covenant had not been made so very clear to them when God promised to make them His own. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 3. One of the great advantages to being Jewish was that they had been entrusted with the very oracles of God. That God had given them direction and order. 
He had given them a pattern by which they could offer worship back to him and remain in close connection and fellowship with God. The oracles of God taught very clearly how to worship Yahweh. They were to worship him expressly in the ways that he had instructed them to do so. And so as these pillars are erected and as these altars are built in the wilderness, we recognize that these Israelites, no matter what their intentions were, were disobeying God because those are not the ways that God said, worship me and be my people. Friends, we can look throughout the world and see examples of people who are doing things that they say are worship in the name of God. But in so many ways, those methods of worship don't match at all the things that God has told his covenant people to do. Even in the new covenant, there is order and structure to the way that we are to give our offerings and blessings to the Lord God. He has dominion over our hearts and minds. Even though he has set us free from the slave master of sin, he still rules over our souls. And so if we respect and honor the Lord God, then what he desires for worship from us should be primary concern to our hearts and minds. We should want to give him the offerings that he has ordered us to give. There is no need for us to go out and think of a better way to worship God or to innovate on the things that he has given to us. God prescribed a way for Israel to worship him under this old covenant. Worship was, for instance, to begin in the heart. There was to be a love for God above all things, and there was to be a love for man, because man bears the image of this God that we love above all things. So Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6, speaks about our love for the Lord God and how we are to care for him. We see in Deuteronomy 6, 7 through 9, that this worship that we were to provide for God was supposed to have both a private component, a love for God that was personal to him, but also a very important public component, that we were to worship him together, that we were to speak of his scripture in the marketplace, that we were to raise our kids in such a way that the world could see that our family was to follow after the Lord God. Worship was to be guided by the things that God had revealed to them in the scriptures, by the law that he had given through Moses and through the instruction of the prophets. We see that in Deuteronomy 4 and 5. And so after the construction of the temple by King Solomon, sacrifices that were to be given to God were not to be offered in worship at any other location than this temple that God had afforded for his people. This made it possible for those offerings to be regulated and to be overseen by people who are specifically of the line of the Levites who descended from Aaron. These were to be able to handle the law in such a solid way that they could make sure the errors were not being committed in the worship of God. Tonight we're going to speak about the Lord's table in evening service, and, and we know that there are do's and don'ts to taking the Lord's Supper as well. God still has order to the ways that the New Covenant Church is even supposed to approach Him, to give Him glory. And it's wise to practice the table only under the guidance of that faithful leadership of God's Word. The, the requirement to offer sacrifices in the Old Covenant only at Jerusalem, reminded the people of the corporate nature of the covenant. They were to gather together with, with people from all the tribes and from all the areas of Israel so that they might give glory to God on these festival days such as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now remember that after the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom, Israel's king Jeroboam deliberately rejected that law by making alternative locations for worship, not at Jerusalem, but at Dan and Bethel, we read about that in 1 Kings 12. So their worship was to be specifically performed in specific ways at specific locations. And this worship that they gave to the Lord was to be an exclusive worship. 
Deuteronomy 6, verses 13 through 15 speaks about how God's people were not to in any way worship like the pagan people of the lands. Though the surrounding nations like the Moabites and the Perizzites would have had their own gods and would have been worshiping people, they would have been a people who had religious intentions and practices. Those practices had nothing to do with the covenant that God had struck with the Israelites. They were to worship God in God's way, not in the ways that man had invented to worship their false invented gods. So this worship was to be set apart. It was to be holy and it was to be Yahweh alone. So when the northern kingdom takes advantage of their prosperity, of the many blessings that God has given to them by upgrading their worship experience, building more altars and more ornate and beautiful pillars where they might practice worship and sacrifice, they were not doing Yahweh's any favors. In fact, they were insulting him and they were dishonoring the covenant that they had agreed to follow. These altars and pillars were imported concepts from the pagan nations around them. You don't find any commands from the Lord to build sacred pillars or to devise a network of altars around the northern territory to make sacrifices and offerings more convenient and to eliminate the need to travel so much. You don't see God saying that. God continues and persists in his instructions for worship that they are to offer their sacrifices in Jerusalem alone. Two of the most egregious errors that the northern kingdom has committed, and we've spoken about this some in previous weeks, so I won't go into much detail, was the golden bulls that the northern kingdom had fashioned and placed in Dan and Bethel. We, again, 1 Kings 12 gives that history. Now these bulls were a surprising development since Israel had already once in their history sinned against Yahweh by making a bull when Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain. And so the fact that here, having separated themselves from the southern kingdom, Israel decides to make these two bulls and make them specific locales and centers for worship is somewhat shocking. They have not learned their lesson. Now, some people look at these bulls and they think, well, this is an indication that they've moved on from Yahweh because the, the false god Baal was signified by the image of a bull. But in reality, a careful study of it shows that Though that was shared with Baal, this idea of an image of a bull being powerful and, 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 and impressive, this bull was still supposed to represent Yahweh. Much in the same way that in Exodus, when they had created this bull out of the golden implements they pillaged from Egypt before their exit from the nation there, much like that golden bull was still supposed to be connected to Yahweh. These bulls were supposed to keep them connected to Yahweh, but still it was the wrong way to worship. And it's not as though God had failed to warn Israel of falling into this error, this problem of building false idols that, that are only a shadow of the true God and cannot fully represent him in the material world. Exodus 23 verses 23 through 24 says, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. He says this again to them in Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 4, but the destruction of those altars is even more explicit in that passage in Deuteronomy 12. Now, in the beginning of their time in Canaan, Israel had begun to do this. They started off on a good foot. Joshua and the warriors of the 12 tribes made a valiant initial effort to push out the foreigners of the land who were rejecting Yahweh as God. 
to subdue the land and to rid the nation of this false worship. But as they began to enjoy the land that they had been promised, a land that was flowing with milk and honey and abundant riches, their efforts to expel this false worship slowed and eventually stopped before the task was complete. They tolerated the foreign peoples of the, ne- the region that God had given to them as a blessed land. And over time, they began to covet the forms of worship that they saw in these peoples practiced right near them, right next door to where they were living. The ornate pillars of these unbelieving Gentiles began to catch their eye. And before you know it, Israel's begun to construct some of their own kinds of pillars and altars. And sadly, they ended up importing more than just the form of worship of these false deities. Eventually, they did begin to worship gods such as Baal and Asherah. This is why Hosea points out in the fourth verse of our section today, the worthlessness of Israel's promises to God. Though they had covenanted with the Lord to be his set-apart people, their faithfulness did not take long to dry up. What started as pillars in the high places and altars that offered an alternative to Jerusalem's allure soon became actual bona fide idol worship amongst Israelites. While there were two golden calves, one placed in Bethel and one placed in Dan, Hosea focuses in on the one at Bethel. It became the more dominant place of worship for the, uh, the, the, the um, spiritual life of the northern kingdom. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Bethhaven, says Hosea, meaning that their hearts had begun to truly covet this golden calf. They loved its beauty and they thought of it as a symbol of power and of, of wealth and, and victory. Now, God is not ashamed to declare to us that he is a jealous God. He knows that the worship of any false God will be, to a, detriment, will be a detriment to his people. And so he will not sit by and tolerate this sin. Hosea declares here that the northern kingdom will be stripped of the golden idol in order to show them that their hope must not rest in the material things of the world. It must rest in the God who alone is sovereign to save. Now this golden statue, which represented their misuse of the wealth and prosperity that God had graciously given to them, would be ripped away from them. God would literally allow it to be pillaged by the Assyrian nation that was coming soon to dominate Israel in the north. Now, there are echoes of this event, of this punishment, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. In that story, which happened in Israel's history before this judgment, Israel had gone out to battle with the Philistine people. The Philistines had the advantage after the first day of battle. They had laid to rest 4,000 Israelite troops. And so the Israelites were losing this battle. They thought the Lord had called them to expel these wicked people, and so they were perplexed by this. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. The ark was kept in Shiloh because the temple had not been built yet. This was the time of the judges. Verse 4, So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So again, on the surface, this almost seems like a worshipful move. They have been bested in battle on the first day, but they still have forces and they know they're going to go out to war again the next day. So they think, what can we do to ensure the victory? 
And they begin to think of the Ark of the Covenant in the way that the foreign people around them think of their totem gods. Like it's some kind of superstitious anthem that they can bring into war. And as long as they have that lucky rabbit's foot, they're not going to lose. God can't let them lose if they've got the Ark of the Covenant with them. So while it seems almost like they're, they are bearing the banner of Christ, by, or the bearing banner of Yahweh by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle, what they're really doing is they're treating the Ark as if it is an idol that they can use however they want to use. There's an idolatrous way about which they treated the Ark that day. And the spiritual health of God's people is more important to God than military victory. So when the Israelites carried that ark into battle, God did not supply them with the victory that day. On the contrary, the enemy forces of the Philistines prevail again. 30,000 soldiers fell at the hands and the swords of these Philistines. Among them, Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli the judge, both were killed. But a fate worse than defeat fell upon them that day. The Philistines captured the ark and took it back with them as spoils of war. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line. He came to share the terrible news. And Eli had been seated by the gate of the city. He was very much so anxious about what was going to happen in this war. And so he waited for reports of battle. And when the messenger came, he shared the following news with Eli. He says in verse 17 of the same chapter in 1 Samuel, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God had been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was a man, he was, for the man was old, and he was heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. And so when this messenger comes and shares with Eli that his sons have been slain, his grief must have been great. But his grief hit a whole new level when he heard that the ark had been grabbed by the Philistines and taken captive. Hosea, in some ways, is, is like this, this, this event. Eli's sons, Phinehas, who, uh, who died in battle, had a wife who was at the very time of battle quite pregnant. And so when she heard the news that this messenger had to bring to Eli, that her husband had died and been slain, and that, that the ark had been captured, she went into traumatic, uh, traumatic labor. Her grief at the loss of her husband in the ark was so great that when the baby came out, she said, I want to name this child Ichabod, which translated from the Hebrew means the glory of God has departed. Hosea, in so many ways, prophesies the same thing after the northern kingdom is subdued by the Assyrian army. There will be a, a, a removing of the glory of God from them. The two golden calves that were originally icons of their worship had become nothing short of sinful idols. And so God would allow them to be carried away uh, by the Assyrian armies. Hosea 10.6, The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. The lament of the nations after this defeat will be so great as they mourn the loss of their treasured, treasured golden calf that they'll be besides themselves. And because of the darkness of their hearts, it will not be easy for them to understand that God's hand is actually performing a very loving thing by stripping this idol away from them. Hosea shows us that in the language 
that he uses to describe Yahweh's judgment upon the people. He says that judgment will spring up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the fields. He uses that language because that's the attitude that Israel in the north had towards God's righteous judgments, that they were like weeds. When in reality, the judgments of God, friend, are like beautiful fruit. When God turns us away from our sin and strikes us for for what we have done wrong and causes us to repent, we can't ask for a greater gift from the Lord God. Israel, unfortunately, harbors an attitude of bitterness towards God's righteous judgments. By describing these judgments as poisonous weeds, we see that they will be like a thing that they despise. Justice is seen by the northern kingdom as poison. But poison, justice is a poison which only impacts evil. It only kills that which is wrong. So we have this this passage of judgment, and what are we to do with this? God will stir up uh, repentance in the hearts of his people by stripping away their idols. He will dismantle the throne in the north. He will cause them to lose their sovereignty. They will no longer be a people in charge of their own lands. This pagan group of Gentiles will come and conquer them. The loss of this prosperity will eventually cause the north to confess their error. We read here in uh, this section of scriptures where Hosea says that they will say, We have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? In other words, they will eventually see that they have not feared the Lord the way that they should. And though their kings have been slain, they will realize that the answer to this problem is not another earthly king, not another man who tends to look after his own interests and and falls back into the sin that so many of the kings of Israel had been uh, subject to. In a sense, they are correct. An earthly king is not what they need. But the remedy they truly need is a different kind of king, a king whose dominion stretches beyond the, the, the borders of Israel, a king whose authority stretches beyond the numbers of soldiers that Israel had in their army. They need a king who is in every way more righteous than they are, a king who will rule in a way that is flawlessly in line with the will and the commands of Yahweh. This king will eventually come through the line of David by way of the people of Judah. And of course, this king is Jesus. The son sent by God to live among us was the greatest gift that God could possibly give to his people. There could not be a more generous gesture of love than for God the Son to humble himself and to come down to dwell among this rebellious and brokenhearted people. And it is no coincidence that when God eventually did send his only begotten son 750 years after the northern kingdom experiences this judgment, this humbling defeat that Hosea warns at, that Jesus would warn the New Covenant people in a very similar way to guard their hearts against the potential pitfalls of prosperity. Turn with me in your scriptures to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look this morning at two New Testament passages where Jesus teaches his people to guard their hearts against the potentially intoxicating allure of wealth and riches. Mark chapter 8 will be our first passage. says, starting in verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now there are three parts to this passage, three components to what Jesus teaches in this moment. There is an exhortation, a challenge to the people. There is an explanation where God teaches about the why and illustrates the purpose behind it. And then there is an expectation. He puts a future understanding into their minds so that they will know what to expect when he returns. So let's look at these three components one by one. First of all, we see here in the teachings of Christ an exhortation that the people are to deny themselves, that they are to take up their cross, and they are to follow after Jesus. In light of what Jesus had taught them about their need to repent and trust in God, the right response to that challenge is to begin to look at the self in a true and an accurate way. To deny ourselves is a twofold practice. We deny ourselves by denying our compulsion to rely on ourselves for salvation. This points to the separation of the law and the gospel. When we follow Christ, we recognize that the law can never save us, that we by our own efforts and, and, and work cannot redeem ourselves or wash ourselves clean. And so we see the need to look beyond ourselves. When we deny ourselves, we look ourselves in the mirror and recognize and, and admit that I don't have what it takes to be a holy person apart from God's help. We deny our own efforts to keep the law in such a way that we might appear holy to God. We also deny the very urges and the temptations within our wicked hearts that would entice us to deny Jesus. It is native to the heart of man to want to reject authority over himself. Man wants to have dominion over himself alone. And so when we deny ourselves, we're denying our ability to save ourselves. We're also denying these urges that we have to reject the one hope we have for salvation. Pride and the desire to see ourselves as less sinful men and women than we really are and the temptation to think that we only need a little help from Jesus. These are things we must deny as we follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. These aspects of our nature must be put to death. They must be left behind. And that is what Jesus means by this language of the cross here. To take up your cross is to embrace the fact that the new birth that he brings to the elect is accompanied by a corresponding passing away of the sinful life that preceded our salvation. Our cross is not our difficulties here. It's not the hardships we have in life. It's not our sicknesses or our, our difficult relationships. It's not our disabilities. Our cross is, is literally the death of our old sinful life. Jesus is not just saying prepare to suffer for a cross or prepare to suffer for a cross was not a symbol of suffering alone. It was a symbol of death. And it led inevitably to death. So the Christian has been buried with Jesus in the likeness of his death through baptism and is raised in the likeness of his resurrection to live a new life to his glory. And so we are to deny ourselves. We are to turn away from this wickedness in us that wants to be free from God. We are to deny this alluring voice in our head that says, you can do it. Through religious means, you can make yourself pure again. We cannot. So let us deny ourselves and take up this cross and rejoice that God is putting to death this old life that used to be our definition. So this exhortation is an exhortation to leave behind whatever desires used to define us. We will not be able to do this apart from God's help, friends. To save a person, God must first replace their stubborn heart. He must take their sins upon himself 
and he must crucify them. And when he has done that, he will provide not only forgiveness, but a heart that is able to now love him instead of really only loving the self. And so we're shown here a great paradox. Whoever desires to save and retain what he thought was life will end up losing it. But he who lets go of the life that he formerly lived in rebellion to God and embraces Jesus Christ by faith will experience a new life, a spirit-filled life of fellowship with God's Son. That is the exhortation aspect of what Christ is saying here. But secondly, he also gives an explanation. An explanation so that his disciples will understand the importance of dying to oneself. He says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is in many ways hypothetical, isn't it, friends? What man could gain the whole world? Many have tried. but The mightiest leaders in the history of history have not been able to secure the whole world. But even if they could, they are not in control of their own destiny. They are not in control of their own soul. And a pursuit of worldly good at the expense of spiritual accountability would be a waste of our time. Not only that, it has been revealed to us by God that the current world that we live in is passing away. So why would we want this world that we know has judgment in store for it? It will one day be lost. Even if you could secure dominion over the whole world, God will one day, with a word, cause it to become uncreated. And a new heavens and a new earth will replace it. The only thing that will persist forever is the souls of the people who occupy this world right now. And those souls will exist in one of two places. They'll exist in a state of peace with God if they are Christians. They will exist forever in a state of judgment if they have denied Jesus Christ as the one Savior. So you probably have not spent much time trying to conquer and gain the whole world. But ask yourself this question, friend. What means the world to you? What is so important to you that you'll put aside almost everything else to pursue it? Is it financial security? The ability to go and do and buy the things that you want? Is it recognition by your peers? An acknowledgement that you are worth something, that you're useful to the community that you belong to? Is it a thriving family? Do you focus almost entirely on raising up your children and and, and building a, a household that is secure and stable? Is it remarkable wisdom and understanding? You feverishly pursue knowledge at all costs. If in order to obtain any of these things, you would need to set aside the greater gift of Jesus Christ, then none of them are a goal worth pursuing. Gaining those things without the presence of Jesus in your life, without the redemption that only He can supply, would ultimately leave you nothing less than cursed, not blessed. And so Jesus asks, what can a man give in return for his soul? Even if a person could possibly accumulate all the riches of the world, among those riches would not be found a currency great enough to pay for our sins. Redemption cannot be purchased by the passing value of the material world. It can only be purchased at the cost of a perfectly worthy sacrifice. And we know, friends, that there is only one of those. That is Jesus himself. There is no commodity more valuable than the precious blood of Christ. There is no prize greater than the free gift of his grace. Now these teachings were hard for the people that Jesus was teaching. It was hard for them to swallow. And they are still hard for people to accept today. To trust Jesus is not something that you can dabble in. To worship the King of Kings is not a part-time endeavor. 
You can't major on yourself and minor in Jesus. If Jesus will make you his own, he's going to take the whole of you as his own. And that is why there is a kind of expectation described in the last verses of this passage. We can expect that those who have put Jesus to the side in this life, those who have pursued other things besides Jesus, that they will be put aside by Jesus for eternity. If we deny him, Christ will deny us. If we are ashamed of him and the things that he teaches, then when the Father takes, us, takes up his place on the judgment seat, when we stand before him and our sins are undeniable, when we need an advocate, a mediator, one who can intercede on our behalf and secure a freedom for us that we have not earned ourselves, in that moment, our shame for Jesus and our rejection for him would result in him denying us. We would stand on our own. And the scripture is right. Not one of us would be able to stand for the weight of our sin would be too great for us to bear. So we must rejoice, friends, not in anything that we could accomplish or accumulate for ourselves, but we must rejoice in the fact that Jesus alone is the way. Jesus is not an easy way to the Savior, or to, to salvation, rather, but there is no other path to take if we want to be near to God. If we want to know the Lord and we want to have peace with Him, then Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth. What Jesus revealed through the proclamation of the true word does sting us because it exposes our weaknesses. It shows us that we cannot do for ourselves what we would love to be able to do for ourselves. And so it hurts to hear these truths, but it also exposes the mighty power of Jesus Christ. And there is no rival. There is no one who can be mightier than him. Jesus is the life. And without him, whatever passes for life is only a fleeting vapor, a temporary mirage that only seems like substance. Apart from the sovereign intervention of God, our pursuit of what we think would be a full life would only result in an inevitable death forever. And so Jesus, in concert with the Father and the testimony of the Old Testament fathers and prophets, warns those of us in the New Covenant that prosperity may seem great on the surface, but it cannot be trusted. Our trust needs to be squarely resting upon Jesus Christ and Him alone. One more passage before we conclude. This one is found in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, which records for us the Sermon on the Mount. Just looking briefly at the end of chapter 6, it says, starting in verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first, first, friends, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. To follow after Christ is not to forfeit all earthly pleasure. Wealth, a family, social belonging, the accumulation of wisdom, none of these are inherently wicked things. In fact, our Father in heaven knows that we need these things. He knows that they are beneficial to us and they are and often the very means by which He gives blessings to us. But there is an ordering that must be done in our hearts, a sense of priority, that when Christ is made first, above and beyond any other pursuit, 
Our hearts will be guarded from the dangers of seeing earthly prosperity become like an idol to us. And so, friends, we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, the firstness of Jesus being spoken of here is not to be seen only in the sense of order. It is not as if we stop everything we're doing, we get our hearts and our minds set on Jesus, we get that all sorted out, and then once the first thing is done, then we move on to secondary things. We can move on to other more advanced tasks. That would be a huge error. To seek Jesus first is to keep Jesus first. To seek him constantly knowing that he has preeminence in all that we do in, the, in, in life. Has God made you a wealthy person? Then praise him. Keep him first so that the ways that you use your wealth would be a blessing to the kingdom of heaven. So that those riches that he has given to you will never become an idol that would eventually separate you from loving God most and more than anything. Has God given you a family? Then keep Christ first in that family. Be a mother or a father who loves the Lord first so that you might be properly equipped to love your children best. Has God given you a job where you work around people who do not call upon his name? Then be thankful for your job, but keep Christ first in the context of that job. Look for ways that you might pray for your co-workers. Testify of the goodness of God in your life if you get the opportunity to do so. Have integrity in the way that you fulfill the tasks that have been assigned to you. In all things, keep Christ first. These Israelites, like Gomer, had been stripped of the blessings that they had taken and used in a way that was unholy to the Lord God. But we are grateful that there is redemption for those who remain in Yahweh, who turn their eyes back to him in repentance. Whatever failures that we, have, that we have committed against our God, when we have allowed something to become first in our lives, we can rest in the knowledge that our ability to keep him first is not the thing that saves us, but it is his preeminence which overcomes our sins. When we have let other things get out of order in our lives, let us look to the scriptures for comfort, for it is the scriptures that tells us that repentance returns us to his sight and helps us to reorder the things that we have gotten out of order. Let us keep God the dearest and most precious treasure of our hearts and minds. Let us store up our treasures in heaven that we might not sin against him on earth. And may the blessings that he give, give us remain a blessing as they are properly ordered underneath our affections that we have for him. Father, we thank you for this day. We praise you for the love of Christ, we thank you for the word that you have bestowed upon us, God. We pray that we would be good stewards of it. Help us this day to rejoice in all that you give and in all that you take away as well. Some of our greatest gifts, God, have been a stripping away of things that became too important to us, things that threatened to steal our affections from you. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to recognize when, when you stripped us down bare like that, that you are not doing that to hurt us, but to keep us from evil. God, we thank you that you don't leave us in that state, but that as covenant children, every blessing in the heavenly places has been secured for us, God. So let us remind, let us be reminded of your, your compassion towards us, Lord, of the mercy that you show and of your generosity to continue to forgive even when we fall into error again and again. Lord, we are so thankful that salvation is a gift from you and that it is your powerful hand that keeps us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.